I know, I know. You want to watch the rest of the movie and not listen to me. But guess what? That's not an option. So buckle up. You know, when I first watched that movie the first time, it's, it's out of Thor 2, the second part of the Thor movie. Uh, when I watched that scene the very first time, I knew in that moment that my life would never be the same. It's one of those scenes where I'm like, that has changed my life. And you may go, that, that's, that's crazy, Renaud. How does that change your life? I'll tell you exactly how it did. Um, because when I was watching that scene and I was watching what was occurring, uh, it shaped the way that I begin to understand and see what it means to guard the realities of my heart. You see, in this scene, if you don't know what's going on, Heindel, who is the guy that you saw run up the bridge, he is the great guardian of Asgard, which is the beautiful city in which Thor and his people live, uh, watching over the nine realms, okay? And Heindel seems at face value to have one of the most insanely boring jobs on, on, on any planet for that matter. Uh, you know that, that, that show, uh, Worst Jobs or you know, Horrid Jobs or Dirty Jobs? I mean, he would be in the top five, no doubt, because this is Heindel, right? He's this giant dude that's in incredibly powerful. You're like, what do you do? I stand. I stare. And that's his job. He stands and stares. I'm like, what is that? Because what Heindel is tasked to do for as long as he has breath is to stand at the gates of Asgard and to watch so that no enemy No one can pass the gates and come in and create destruction in the city. And because Heindel is there, no one comes. You see, his job, his presence is both preventive and constant and regular to protect. And in this scene, an enemy decides that they're going to create and they figure out how to create an invisible army, a ship that is invisible. Now you get to see the ship slightly glimmer because they want you to know what's going on because you're the movie watcher. But Heindel cannot see that ship. It is invisible to him. And because he is so vigilant, so, so, so con- completely calculated, so absolutely focused, he, he senses, feels, hears something is off. And if you were on that bridge taking a stroll in the sunlight and you turned around and saw Heindel running down the bridge and running up the side of the bridge, you might go, what has gone through his head? And then he launches off the bridge and you're like, the guy's insane. Until what? The knives come out as he's flying through the air and when it goes into the ship and the invisible becomes visible, all of us go, oh, wow. And then he becomes the hero, doesn't he? He brings down the mighty ship and it crashes on the bridge and when he lands with his two feet and you see his face zoom in, I mean, I wanted to get up and cheer in the movie. I mean, Thor's okay, but Heindel is awesome. He's my favorite character. I want his sword because he guards the gates. And and I knew then when I watched that scene that I will never think of guarding my heart the same way. Every time I think of guarding my heart, I think of that scene. I think of that vigilance. I think of that dedication to the invisible and the visible, ridiculous, foolish notions, ideas, thoughts, and actions that come from the enemy coming into our hearts to cause us to act foolishly. And I want to be Heindel at those gates, man. I, I, you know, I, I live in a home with 10 human beings, all flawed. Uh, and so there's eight kids and two adults, and they're all flawed. And when you put 10 human beings in a house, all flawed, it makes for quite a playground for the enemy. It really does. It's, it's quite fascinating. I, I kind of sometimes just want to look and go, he must have, he must just walk in my house and go, this is going to be fun. 
because, because there's so much to play. In any given 60 seconds, it is extraordinary to me how many misunderstandings can happen in 60 seconds. It starts with a single misunderstanding with a rebuttal to a rebuttal from someone that had no business being part of the conversation to someone else who had no business misunderstanding the second one going to the third to a parent reacting in a way they probably shouldn't, causing a much larger rebuttal coming back, which is talking back, which requires discipline, which requires death, and immediately the entire place. And that's 60 seconds. So the enemy can come and he can come fast. So I tell my kids all the time, listen, we have among us, in our home, in our place, an enemy who does not rest and he waits to find one of us that for a momentary little piece in time will be willing to listen or to engage in his foolishness. And when that happens, he can wreak havoc in our home, devouring and destroying us. So we must be watchful all the time. In fact, I'll tell you, I can't say it as well as the scriptures do. I mean, Peter, when he wrote to the church in his first letter in 1 Peter, he wrote and told them about this enemy. And this is the wording that he uses. In 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, in verse 8, he, he says, I mean, in verse 6, he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. So he starts saying, listen, first things first, forget about yourself. And, and place yourself uh, where you belong under the authority of God and his story and his direction. Do not try and be your own God. Stop it. Just humble yourself. Wait on God. Trust him. Cast all your anxieties on him. Those things that tend to drive our needs or, or are driven by our needs. Set them aside. He's got it covered. Why? Because he cares for you, it says. Now look at this. Here, verse 8. Here it is. Be sober-minded. That's the same as being alert or awake. You can put any one of those words into that. Sober-minded, alert, or awake. Same word, okay? Be sober-minded, alert, or awake. Be watchful. Here it is. Your adversary, that's your enemy, the devil, prowls around, I love this, like a roaring lion. That's bad. I grew up in Africa. That's bad. Seeking someone to devour. He is walking around to devour us, to consume us, to overthrow us so that we will serve his purposes instead of the purposes of God, even if it is momentarily. And that's who is in my home. That's who is at my doorstep. That is the one that follows me wherever I go. So I tell my kids, man, we got to be watchful. And then I tell them, here's how, you, here's how you watchful. Okay, it says it next. Here it is, verse nine. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that some, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, where you feel like your entitlements have been robbed from you. Stop. Resist the foolishness of the devil. And I tell my kids all the time, what does it mean to resist or renounce the devil? It's really quite simple. You just say this. I know you to be a fool, I know God to be wise, so I am not, I'm done listening to your foolishness. Uh, depart from me. Go away. We must be watchful. We just came out of Easter, right? I mean, it's the week after Easter. And, and I, was, I was prayerfully considering what we were going to cover. And you know, even, even my team were like, the week after Easter, you're doing this? I mean, really? I mean, there's people coming, and this is their second time ever. And you're like, resist the devil. What is that? Now, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. 
Because after the Easter journey that we took, you know, from the Palm weekend through the devotionals throughout the week, traveling with Jesus in the story into Good Friday night and the services there into the Easter weekend. I mean, I don't know about you, but I had a grand time. I mean, I felt like, I feel like I have walked with Jesus. I have, I have watched, I have listened, I've, I've, I've smelled the smells of Jerusalem. I've experienced his death and grieved and I have, I have just shouted and screamed at the resurrection. And, and I want to linger in that, don't you? I mean, I just want to rest in that. I just want to stay there the whole time. Just kind of be with him. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But the kind of lingering that I want to do and the resting I want to do is just to kind of sit and be. The trouble is that my enemy isn't sitting and being. He is actively engaged in destroying what I have lingered in. He is actively engaged in wanting to break that down. Uh, Jesus said in John 10.10, your enemy has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come to give you life and to give it to you to the full. Our enemy never rests. And more than resting and lingering in the resurrection, I want to live and sustain in the resurrection. And if the resurrection is that powerful last weekend, then I can guarantee you that my enemy is that active this week. Because he's not going to sit around and allow me to be lingering in things like the gospel, lingering in things like the resurrection. He is out to distract, out to steal, out to kill, out to destroy. And I was reminded in a dramatic and and horrifying experience uh, two weeks or so before Easter at the incredible power of the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy. Nothing is sacred for him. No territory is out of bounds for him. Two weeks before Easter, there was a pastor down in uh, southern Florida, significant and incredible church, one that has done unbelievable things over the last almost 30 years now since it was planted, uh, a man named Bob Coy. I'd met him last year at a conference, spent some time with him, uh, just an inspiring man to be around. He has been teaching and, and sharing God's word for almost 30 years with people. The church that he planted in, in 86 grew from the little band of people he had there to almost 20,000 people. It is a significant church in our, in our uh, uh, state, in Florida, in central Florida. It's significant nationally. It's significant globally for that matter. When I look at churches in the nation that I go someday, I hope we have a voice that loud. This is one of those churches. It's a Calvary Chapel. And Bob Coy, the lead pastor there, uh, just uh, watching his ministry for 28 years, extraordinary run. Comes out two weeks before Easter that it's been discovered that he has had a moral failure. You know what that means, right? I mean, inappropriate relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't begin to tell you how devastating that was. I mean, I, 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 I've met Bob. I, I've hung out with Bob. He's inspired me. And, and I'm just like, what? Come on. I mean, no, not again. Not, not, not this, not this time. I mean, this is a man you watch and you go, this is the guy you've, you've watched on the stage. I'm sure he's close to Jesus, right? I'm, I'm sure everything's good because, because he's bringing it to us. God, through, you know, What? This is exactly what happened uh, just about uh, a year ago, over the, the, t- the 12 months before that, so over the last 24 months, here in our city, incredibly powerful churches, powerful meaning loud and gospel-centric and awesome churches, their leaders leading them out. 
and we find out. I mean, a summit church, a fantastic church, a church that, that I, I was just like, man, I, I, I want to be like summit in so many ways. Loud in our city, loud and doing all sorts of awesome things. Isaac Hunter, an inspirational leader. And it, it comes out, yeah, moral failure, massive moral failure. What? And then Discovery Church, another, I mean, these, these aren't like oddball churches. I mean, these, these are my favorites, right? I mean, these are the churches I look to, to learn from. I'm watching and going, wow, look at what they're doing. And, 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 and David Loveless, the lead pastor there last year, comes up, moral failure, moral failure. And I, and I can't tell you as a, as, a, as a pastor how devastating that news is every time it comes out. It's devastating for multiple reasons. It's devastating because if you're a thinking person, you ought to be thinking this. Well, what prevents Renault from having that story five years from now? I mean, if you're not thinking it, I am. So you ought to. Isn't that what those stories do? Now, now, now by God's grace, we do forget this sometimes, of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors in our city we're talking about three, because that's the articles that are written. They don't write the articles about the little guy who's plugging away faithfully in his church down the road. There are hundreds that are faithful, but man, when they fall and it comes and the enemy gets past the gates, it's devastating to us all, isn't it? And it causes us all to kind of go, what does this mean? I mean, if, if, if David and Isaac and Bob are vulnerable to the enemy, where does that leave us, right? I mean, we're in trouble. Where does that leave me? Where does that leave you? And so here at Mosaic Church, uh, about a year ago when all this was coming out, man, we, we got together a bunch. I mean, hours and hours and hours for weeks and weeks and weeks and months really dialoguing. What does this mean? How do we protect the gates? How do we guard the gates? How do we stop the enemy? If he got by there, how do we make sure he doesn't get by here? And we started in the most obvious place where we all kind of tend to begin, right? Accountability. I love that word. Accountability. Oh my, we need more accountability. So we, we went back. We checked our accountabilities. I mean, we, are we accountable? Am I accountable? Is, is, are people watching me? Are people looking over me? Is everything in place? And, and so we started looking. And, and we were happy to find that for the most part, our accountabilities here were really well intact, right? I mean, uh, you know, when we deal with things like money here, it's always in plurality and it's never me, right? So I'm never involved in the money and it's always a group of people together. Every little uh, uh, dime is accounted for. So we've got lots of accountability. And we have accountabilities in, in those things, you know, on our computers and our devices and checks and at staff meetings we exchange iPhones and we don't delete histories and lots of accountabilities there. And we got accountabilities in just about every category you can imagine. So like our accountabilities are well intact. We, we've done a good job making sure all that's in play. But then we started digging a little bit into these churches and we found out that their accountabilities were intact as well. See, they had good accountability. They weren't just like messing around with that stuff. The, the accountabilities were in place. And so we discovered in our journey that accountability does have a purpose, but it's a limited purpose. Accountability will keep you safe from your stupid moments. But accountability will not keep you safe from your devastating decisions. Accountability will keep you safe from your stupid moments. Let me explain. It's uh, 11 o'clock at night. My wife has gone up to bed. I'm still working on the computer preparing for something. 
something pops up, a video from a friend, I click on it, you click on that, it goes to YouTube, now there's ads on the corner. An ad seems intriguing, it's got a picture on it, you click on it, the next thing you know there's several other ads and you're ready to travel down that road, okay? You don't wanna go there, you don't wanna see that stuff, but it's 11 o'clock at night and you're a little tired and you're not thinking straight and the enemy's kinda telling you. What prevents you from clicking on that ad, I'll tell you. Because the second you do, my computer with Triple X Church emails five people, my wife included. Do you know what Renault looked at? Oh man, you wanna explain that the next morning? I don't wanna explain that the next morning, so I don't click on the ad. You see, because I don't actually wanna see the ad, I'm just a little tired, and accountability protects me from a stupid moment. But accountability is driven by behavioral control. It controls behavior. It puts things in place, it polices behavior so that we don't behave in a manner that's foolish. But it does not control desire. It does not protect desire. Desire comes from somewhere deeper and desire transcends accountability. Desire is not protected by accountability. Accountability is limited. And we realized that we don't want to spend our time protecting behavior exclusively because that ultimately will get really awkward. Because the only way I'm truly safe if accountability is the primary safety net I have is that if I'm accountable 24-7. And I got to tell you, at three in the morning when I'm laying next to my wife in bed, having an elder sitting in my room is going to be awkward. You understand? That's going to be a little awkward. We're just here to hold you accountable. Well, see, we can't do accountability at that level. It doesn't work. So accountability has limitations in that when my desires are born and they're beginning to birth sin, I will transcend accountability. I'll find a way around. I'll just lie. So accountability is limited. What we realized was that the scriptures already knew this. See, Solomon is one of the wisest men that uh, ever lived. In fact, biblically, it, it would argue the wisest man that has ever lived. And Solomon wrote uh, the, the writings of the wise, the Proverbs, and in the Proverbs, he writes this. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above everything else, guard your heart. It's an interesting thing that Solomon would say that we would guard our hearts above all else because our hearts are this sort of ambiguous, weird deal, right? I mean, it's an organ in your body, but you know when we say heart, we mean the inner parts of the human being, that place that is our heart. What is born in the heart? What comes from the heart? What does Solomon mean when he says guard the heart? It makes sense to me to kind of guard the mind, right? Because that's where all the ideas happen and ideas birth things. And so if you guard the ideas, then you're good. But the heart seems kind of odd to me. So we start exploring what is this heart thing that Solomon is talking about? What is the human heart? I'll tell you, it's not actually that complicated. Do you know why on the beach, when, we, when we're on the beach with the one we love, we write their names in the sand and what do we put around that? Do we, what do we draw? We draw a heart, right? We Facebook it. Oh, everybody comments, 97 comments. So cute, you're amazing, love you guys, right? There it is, the heart. Why do we on our Valentine's Day cards stick stickers of hearts all over them? Why is everything red? See, see if, if we were logical, we would, we would put our names in the sand and we would draw a brain around it. I have decided to love this person. We would have cards with brains on them for Valentine's Day. But we have hearts on them, why? Because we know something, don't we? 
that it is out of our heart, that place in us deep inside, that our passions are born, that our loves are born, that our desires are born. That's where they come. They don't come from here. Is there an intellectual component to the heart? Yes, because your thoughts, the things that come in your head, they feed your heart, and then your heart grows desires. Desires grow passions. Passions, if they're the right ones, grow protection and wonder, and if they're the wrong ones, birth sin. So yes, should you guard your mind? Absolutely. Should you know what comes in and out? Absolutely. Why? Because you should guard your mind? No. Because your mind feeds your heart and your heart births powerful things. Hear me now. You and I will give ourselves to the people and things we love. Hear me again. You and I will give ourselves, lay ourselves down for the things and the people that we love. And when I say the word love there, yes, I'm talking about the holistic kind of love, not what we Christians often do. You know, we take love and we turn it into an intellectual decision. We don't want to deal with all the feeling stuff because, you know, those come and go. So that's not love. Love is like you decide. So in our marriages, you know, in marriage counseling, we're like, you decide to love this person. And then I sit there, I'm like, I want to like feel things for them. Can I do that too? Yes, yes, but don't count on that. Well, I got to tell you, I, I disagree. Yes, I decide, absolutely, but I also count on all the stuff that comes from in here. Man, when I look at my wife, stuff happens. Stuff I can't explain. I feel upside down and inside out. I'm like, help. I want to feel that way the whole run. Not every day. I mean, that would be weird because I wouldn't be able to get anything done. So there's good practical stretches where I don't want to like her for a day or two so I can get something done. But overall, I want to feel that way, right? I, I want to I be engaged. Because here's the deal, guys. We know this. We can pretend, but we know this. What you're passionate about, what you're in love with, in love with, that's what you give yourself to. That's what you pursue. That's what you that lay yourself down for. So what we determined here at Mosaic Church in the leadership discussions and staff discussions is that accountability, though it will keep us safe from our stupid moments, and we, so we need it, accountability is limited. What will keep us safe from our devastating decisions are our intimacies. The things we are intimate with will keep us safe from devastating decisions because when we are in love with the right things, we don't fall in love with the wrong ones because we're in love already. So we started boiling it down and asking what intimacies will ultimately keep us safe? What are the intimacies, the things we are nurturing, the things we are passionate about, uh, uh, in love with, desiring, that will keep us safe from these devastating decisions that we read about, that we hear about, that sink us, from the ships that will come by uh, that are foolish ideas that draw us out of where God wants us. What are those intimacies? And after boiling them down and studying scripture and looking at the practicalities of life and where people tend to fall, we boiled them down to three intimacies. Three intimacies that are, uh, in, in essence, the hindels at our gates. Intimacy number one, we need to be intimate with our creator. We need to, listen out, we need to be in love with Jesus. I mean, in love, I'm not talking about some kind of a devotional religious experience that we're sequencing through day to day. I'm, I do my quiet time. I ask people all the time, you know, how's your relationship with God? And the first thing, 99% of the time, first thing people tell me is about a sequence of things they do. 
Well, I, I, I'm praying more than usual, and I, I've had quiet times consistently for three months. I'm like, fantastic. I, I've had quiet times too, and they don't do much for me. I mean, I read the Bible. It's good. I'm learning, but I don't feel like, oh, in love with Jesus when I'm done with a quiet time, so I don't know. Quiet times are good. Don't get me wrong. They're consistent. They're awesome, but I'm, I'm saying, are you in love? What, what do you mean in love? I mean in love. Like your head's upside down. Like you wake up in the morning, you're going through your day, you're thinking about Jesus. So I mean, thank you. You're incredible. You just see what happened. That guy didn't cut me off. It must have been you. See, I mean, does everything in your life just come back to, man, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is, man, thank you. Do you think about him all day? Are you captivated by him? Are you driven by him? Does he stir things in you? At the, end of, at, the, at the end of any given week, if I say, man, what's Jesus been teaching you? Do you have like, well, where do you want me to start? I got, I got so many. Or do you go, well, uh, in February, I learned something. Are you in love with Jesus? That was the question I had to ask. The second intimacy is with my spouse. If you have a spouse, with your spouse. If you don't have a spouse, if you're not married, then that person or that small group of people God has brought into your life that they know you deeply, preferably someone of the same sex because you're guarding marriage before marriage as well as after, right? So, but you've got that group of people that you're incredibly tight with. If it's your spouse, as is the case for many of us, are you intimate with your spouse? Are you in love with your spouse? I mean, that intimacy will guard you. I think about my wife, 17 years in, man, that woman is blowing my mind. She truly is. I mean, constantly. I, I look at my wife and I'm just like, oh, I, I mean, wow, wow. I am the luckiest guy on planet Earth, no doubt about it. I mean, inside, outside, the whole package, unbelievable. My wife is unbelievable. I went away with two of my boys for three days to Tampa to go to Bush Gardens and then do a little parasailing with them for their birthday trip. Uh, we do birthday trip things. I'll tell you later about that. So we go down to Tampa, and we're in Tampa, and I'm texting back and forth with my wife. And you know, at one point uh, in the evening, I think on Friday, we'd had this day of parasailing. We're on the beach for the afternoon. We're walking down the beach, me and my two boys. We're having this incredible spiritual discussion. It was so incredible, so awesome. The sun is setting. We're on the beach, and here's what's going on through my head, right? I'm having a spiritual discussion with my two boys, my 16 and 12-year-old, and, and a, it's a beautiful moment, and all I kept thinking was, I wish Brooke was here, and they weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go, oh, what? No, seriously, that's what I was thinking. Did I love being with them? Yes. Was, I, was it awesome? Yes. Dude, did I want to be there? Yes. Did I actually want them to disappear? No. But, but there was something in me that when I just want my, I mean, the sun setting, on the beach, the waves like splash, splash. There's an opportunity to draw a heart. And then the rest of the evening, the possibilities are endless. I mean, you understand there's so much. And I'm with my boys. When the spiritual conversation's over, we're playing Frisbee. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, there's something that stirs in me that I, that I, I want to I wanna be with my wife. Because over 17 years, we have been nurturing that relationship. Now, do I feel that way every day about my wife? No. No, it's usually on the beach with sunsets. The, the rest of the time, right, you're in normal life. And there are days, folks, there are days when I don't want to be anywhere near that woman. I just I'm like, I want to be, be out. Like, I'm, I'm like, whoa, I don't like you. And there are many days when she looks at me and goes, I don't like you. So don't get me wrong, this is not like some like, oh, I'm just walking around in love with my wife. No, I'm there, there are days where I'm like, I just, no, no. 
But here's the reality. Overall, despite days that travel that way, sometimes stretches of days, sometimes even a week, deep down inside when I have the thought, live without Brooke, I want to die. Like there's, there's, there, there's nothing there for me. And so I just go, man, I, this, this woman, I love her. You see, while I love my wife, I'm safe. Because while I love my wife, while I'm in love with my wife, I have no desire to love any other woman. It's when I stop loving my wife for a while that suddenly the desire to potentially fall in love with another woman becomes a possibility, doesn't it? As long as I'm in love with my wife, it's not a possibility. I'm totally safe from that. Third one, intimacy with my biblical community. Intimacy with my biblical community. I want to be intimate with my biblical community because they are the people that hang with me, that are watchful for me, watchful with me, and that I'm watchful for. They're the ones that know me well enough to tell when my intimacies with my creator or my wife are a little off. They're the ones that are able to step in and be another Heindel at the gates of my heart. Our intimacies with our creator, our intimacies with our spouse, or that very close circle, and our intimacy with our biblical community, if all three of them are intact, then we are safe. We are safe from devastating decisions. This, it turns out, as you study scripture, this isn't just something we came up with. This is something Jesus knew all along. All along. Take a look. Grab your Bibles with, with me for a second, if you wouldn't mind, because I want to show you this. I want you to turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is on page 586 of our Bibles. Page 586 of our Bibles, if you're grabbing one of ours, or John chapter 14 in yours. In John chapter 14, the context here is Jesus uh, getting ready to leave planet Earth, right? He's, he's getting ready to die, and he's with his disciples, and he knows what they're expecting. They're expecting for him to overthrow Rome and to raise up the, the, the people of Israel and for them to rule by his side. They're certainly not expecting him to die and leave and th- them be left alone. So now he's telling them, pre, pre-leaving, he goes, guys, I just want you to know I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere you can't go, but I don't want you to be afraid. So this is a comforting passage. This is him saying, do not be anxious when I leave because I'm with you. I've got it covered. I'm the author of the story and you're gonna be fine. You with me? That's the context of this passage. This is that famous passage, you know, let not your hearts be troubled. Verse one, believe in God, believe also in me in my father's house So many rooms. If it were not so, would I not, would I not have told you? He's like, I'm going, but don't be troubled. I'm coming back for you. And while I'm gone, you're gonna be fine. It is in verse 15 that he says this. In this incredible context of comforting his disciples, he says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you now and will be in you soon. You see that? Jesus is comforting his disciples and he's saying this, don't worry, I'm sending the, the spirit of God to come and empower you to live the sustained life and if you love me, which I know you do, don't worry, you're gonna follow me. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying what we as human beings have discovered. That person that you love is the person you will give yourself to. We will follow Jesus and follow the ways of Christ while we love Jesus. If we don't love Jesus, 
If Jesus is not one of the stirring desires in our heart, then we will likely not follow Jesus. But if we love him, see this isn't Jesus saying like a manipulative parent, well if you loved me, you'd do what I say. That's me, I do that. Uh, look at you, you disobeyed me again. You just don't love me, you just don't honor me, you just don't respect me. See that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying listen, it's real simple guys, be, be at peace. You guys love me, and if you love me, you're gonna follow me. And did the disciples follow Jesus? Uh, yeah. Were they full of the Spirit? Yeah. Did they love him? Yeah. Did they give themselves to him? Yeah. See, Jesus is saying, listen, if you love me, you will follow me. Look at this, verse 22. Judas is asking about this, not Iscariot, the other one, and said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, I don't understand, God. How are you going to make sure that we can sustain a life without you? How can, how can we be sure we're not going to fall away? Look what Jesus says. He answers, and Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see what he's saying? Guys, you love me. And if anyone loves me, they're going to follow me and we're going to be with them. In fact, he says, those who do not love me do not keep my words. It's very simple. So he's comforting the disciples and saying, listen, do you want to sustain a life? Don't worry. You're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and you just keep loving me. Because as long as you're in love with me, you're going to be fine. Later on in Ephesians, the Spirit of God speaks to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, and, and Paul writes and says, listen, I want you to love your spouses in the same dynamic relationship that the church has with Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, give yourselves to your husbands as the church gives herself to Christ. See, Jesus says, listen, in my relationship with you and your relationship with me, Keep your intimacy, stay in love, nurture that. In your relationship with your spouse, have it function the same as this relationship. And then what does Jesus say? They will know you by your love for one another. In biblical community, they will know you because you love each other. The Bible throughout the New Testament says to the church, build each other up, care about each other, bear each other's burdens, love one another, sing psalms to one another. Anything you can imagine, it's saying, guys, love each other. Love each other. Why? As a matter of fact, in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, the author of Hebrews, uh, he, he tells us exactly why. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more to, as we see the day drawing near. See, the author of Hebrews is saying the reason that we need to love one another and that the world will know that we follow Jesus by our love is because when we love each other, when we are involved in each other's lives, when we are challenging each other, encouraging each other, stirring each other up, that leads us to live a life of love and good deeds, and a life of love and good deeds is extraordinary in our world. See, I used to think what that meant is that when people walk in the door here, and they see us like hugging each other, and like, I love you, I love you, that they'll go, these people follow Jesus. But then I went to football parties, and man, those people love each other far more than we love each other. I mean, if they wear the same shirt, they hug all the time. Every time someone kicks a ball, they hug. And people don't walk out of there going, man, these people love Jesus. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but that's not the conclusion. See, the conclusion that we follow Jesus isn't just because we love each other. It's because our love for one another drives us, stirs us, shapes us to what? 
to intimacy with our creator and intimacy with our deep, close loved ones, our spouse, our family, and intimacy with the mission that God has called us to, intimacy in our biblical community, and that drives us to love and good deeds, and love and good deeds, the world watches and goes, man, who are you people? And then they go, wait a second, wait a second, you follow Jesus, don't you? Yes, we do. So, if we are gonna stay safe as the leadership of Mosaic Church, if we're gonna do that, it is not accountability that is the exclusive act we need to be constant on, it is our intimacies. Because listen guys, let's face it, if I fall to a moral failure, or if one of our leaders fall to a moral failure, is that devastating to the church? Yes. Is it devastating to our city if we're a church that's shaping the city? Yes, and we certainly intend to be, don't we? And if our church becomes a world-changing church, which we intend to be, do you think that will be devastating to the gospel on an epic level? Yes, it will, because there'll be articles written about us, right? Oh, another one down. And so we look at this and we go, man, Renault, man, the pastors of Mosaic, we, you guys better be on this. You better have your intimacies intact. You, you better be vigilant with your intimacies because we, we can't afford that kind of fall. And I agree wholeheartedly, but can I, just, can I just suggest something to all of us? Though those are devastating moments in the immediate because they're so visible and so prominent and these guys are the guys leading us and so we feel that deep violation. Is it not actually truly more damaging to the kingdom that the broken marriage rate in the church is exactly the same as the one outside the church? Isn't it as devastating, if not more devastating, to the kingdom and to the gospel that when you talk to businessmen and women, you often hear this, I will never work with Christians. Why not? They're manipulative, man. They use their Christianity to get more out of you. Really? Yeah. That our reputation in the business world is that? Isn't it more devastating to the kingdom that our reputation in the world is that we're judgmental, that we're, that we're inclusive? I mean, exclusive, I'm sorry, wrong word, we're not inclusive. That we, we push people out, that we, that we act as though we're holier than thou, that we're self-righteous because we're pretenders. Here's the word, you people are hypocrites, that's what they say of us. Isn't that more devastating than any one pastor falling any one time? See, the trouble isn't just this stage presence right here. We have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant because we represent the gospel, not me. I'm one of you. And we must keep our eyes fixed. So how do we do this? How do we stay vigilant? I've come up with three ways in my own life that I am watching my intimacies. I'm practically obsessed with this, I really am. Like, I'm a, because I'm scared of that story. And I've got accountabilities in place really well, but I recognize their limitations. What I fear are my desires getting out of control. So I watch carefully. And here are three ways that I stay vigilant on my intimacies. The first way is this, I'm watchful. I actually watch all the time. We gotta start by being watchful, folks. Didn't, isn't that what it said? Be awake, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful. Your enemy is trying to sneak by the gates. 
So make sure that your hindels are well placed. You're intimate with your creator. You're intimate with your spouse. You're intimate with your biblical community. So at the end of every week, I ask myself, no joke, I look back and I say, do I love Jesus more now than I did the beginning of this week? Do I love Brooke more now than I did the beginning of this week? Do I love my biblical community? In other words, do I enjoy my church more now than I did at the beginning of the week? Can I just tell you the answer is not always yes, okay? Hello, what, no, really? No, really, really, some weeks I get to the end and I'm like, no, I, I don't like Jesus much more now than I did. I liked him the beginning of the week, but now I don't. This week was a, a rough week. Or yeah, no, Brooke, Brooke and I had a rough week. Loved her then, not so much now. See, that does happen. So, so don't think this, this should be a, every week you better say yes. No, many weeks you, you're gonna go, no, not, not really. And what does that do? It shoots up a little orange flag. Bing! Uh-oh, uh-oh. One of my Heindels, one of my guardians, one of my intimacies this week has either stayed neutral or diminished. See, that's, that's not good. You should look and go, need some caffeine, for real. Get some caffeine to that intimacy. Now, not caffeine, but nurturing. See, if a week goes by and you don't love Jesus more, your, your spouse more, your biblical community more, that should be a little orange flag saying, start nurturing this now. Don't wait. Week two, if the answer was no last week, I'm counting on the answer being yes by the end of the second week. If it's still a no, then the orange flag turns red, starts dripping blood, and gets a skull on it. No, I'm serious, in my world, that's how it works. I start going, oh, this is bad. Two weeks in, I'm not nurturing. Something's distracting me. Something's keeping me from being watchful. Somewhere, that's the moment where I'm Heindel and I've let go of the sword already and I'm standing like this and I'm like listening. I'm like, oh, oh, that, there's a ship. It's already past the gate. I feel it. That's week two. If week three happens, I'm running up the bridge. Ah! My knives are pulled and I'm ready. Why? Because three weeks with the intimacy diminishing to my creator, to my spouse, or to my biblical community is a danger zone I do not want to mess with. How do you begin to run up the bridge with the knives? What are the knives? The knives are the nurturing choices you make to nurture the intimacies in any one of those three things. So second thing is I nurture. I'm watchful first, then I nurture. Man, if, if, if I'm watchful and things are bad, then I jump in and I start nurturing. Nurturing looks different for all of us. For some of you, if your intimacy with your creator is a little down, you get consistent with your quiet times and that starts pushing that forward again, doesn't it? That's not me. I love quiet times, but don't get me wrong. When I do quiet time, reading is a chore for me, and so quiet times are a chore for me, and you know, it's the, then I end up fascinated by a passage, and then I'm studying other passages, and then I forget that I'm supposed to be devoting with Jesus. But you throw some worship music on for me, or you throw me in a conversation where we're talking gospel, I leave those places, and I feel like I just wanna go like worship Jesus and tell him how much I love him. See, it looks different for each of us, but you gotta figure out not what is the sequence that tells you, check, 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 I've nurtured that relationship. No, no, here's how you know you've nurtured a, rela a relationship. You ready? When you're done nurturing it, there are things in you that feel different and you feel in love. What do you mean feel in love? You know what I mean. You're like all captivated and obsessed with that reality. I wanna be captivated and obsessed with my savior. I wanna be captivated and obsessed with my spouse because my savior's asked me to love her that much and I wanna be obsessed and captivated by my biblical community so that I am constantly safe from the invisible ships that will come and cause my desires to birth sin which will birth death. So I nurture. So I'm watchful 
Every week, I ask questions about myself, and then, I'm, then, I'm, then I nurture, and here's the last one. I invite, I'm open, I'm open. I'm watchful, I'm nurturing, I'm open. I invite my biblical community into my story with me in my intimacies. I go to them and I go, I'm really scared. Can you watch me for me? Not accountability, I've got that. I want you to watch my life more deeply than accountability. I want you to pay attention to the little nuances of my life. I grew up in Africa, and in Africa, (laughs) uh, the predators, the big dangerous creatures, they travel in very, very small groups or alone. Why? Because that minimizes how much food they need to kill, right? So if there's only three of them, they only need one zebra every week. But if there's nine of them, then they need three zebras, and that's harder to kill, takes more energy. So the, 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 the bad, dangerous animals, they hang out in small groups. Do you know what the animals that get eaten do? They hang out in massive herds. Massive! I mean, that's when you fly the plane over the Serengeti and there's like 20 trillion zebras. And there's a lion, I think, I'm not sure. That's how it works. You know why they they hang out in herds? Because they get eaten, right? That's a bad thing. And so you watch zebras. As they're eating, a bunch of zebras are eating and a bunch of zebras heads up like this. It's almost as though they trade spaces. All right, next! Eat, eat, eat. Everyone else is watching. Eat, 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 eat. Next! Okay, okay, and what do they say? If you smell a lion, if you hear a lion, if you see a lion, if you think you might see a lion, you scream and run. That's it. If it's not a lion, it's okay. We'll just eat the grass on the other side. But if you think it's a lion, you run. That's why when you watch herds, no joke, this is what they look like. And you look around like, there's no lion. Some zebra thought he saw one. No joke. That's how we ought to be. That's how we ought to be, folks. We ought to travel in herds. So I tell my biblical community, man, I want you to be watchful for me. I, I, I do this alone, I die. I get eaten by the enemy, a lion walking around to devour me. So I got our staff together, all of our staff together. I got them all together. I said, okay, we gotta be watchful for one another. This was about nine months ago after all the incidences took place. I said, look, and and the whole staff was there. Now every executive assistant, administrative assistant, receptionist, pastor, intern, er everyone was there. And I said to them, look, we cannot afford not to be watchful for one another. So I'm inviting you to watch my life. And this is what I told them. If you see any Anything, anywhere that's a little off. I'm not holding my wife's hand as much as I did a few months ago. I'm not sitting as close to her as I used to. I'm not talking about the gospel as much as I did six months ago. It doesn't seem like things are bubbling out of me that usually bubble out of me. Anything that looks suddenly, if you smell a lion, if you think you see a lion, you come running to me and you go, oh, excuse me, Renaud, I, I feel like I see a lion starting to devour you. If it's not a lion, it's okay. I'll run with you and we'll both be safe. If it's a lion, you've saved my life. So about two weeks later, after this meeting we had, uh, one of the gals that work for us, Lauren, uh, she had just been hired about a month before, so she's brand new to our staff. She doesn't know me well. I don't know her well. She's the receptionist, okay? I'm the lead pastor. She's the receptionist. And uh, I drive into the church parking lot 
It's about nine months ago, and we were gonna preach a message. I was gonna preach a message on masks, and so I tend to Google stuff like the scene I played. I look for different things that I can bring to the table just to kind of use to enhance the idea and picture that I'm trying to create, and so I Google masks, and the song pops up, Poker Face, that deals with masks. I'm like, oh, who's that? Lady Gaga, I don't know who Lady Gaga was at the time. I do now, I wish I didn't. And so, um, uh, anyways, uh, Lady Gaga pops up, so I'm like, great. So I grab this song, I, I, I download it, and I wanna listen to the words because I don't wanna bring something to the table here to enhance pictures in you if, if there's a bunch of junk in it, right? So I'm listening to the words on my drive to church one morning, and you know, I'm trying to drive through traffic, and so I, I'm not concentrating properly on the words or the traffic, and the traffic seemed more important, and so I, I drove into the church parking lot, I parked my car, I started the song again, turned the volume up, and I kind of sat back in my car, and I'm just concentrating on the words. <laughs> Lady Gaga, poker face, can you imagine it? <laughs> there it is, right? So um, Lauren pulls in next to me, she gets out of her car, poker face is playing in my car and I'm meditating on it. And um, I see her and I wave and she sees me wave and goes inside. About uh, noon that day, I get an email from Lauren. You can tell the email's been rewritten nine times, right? You know those emails? First entire paragraph is apologizing that she is even sending it. And she says, hey, you know, I, 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 I don't know what, what, but I just feel like there was something. And she shares with me, listen, I used to listen to Lady Gaga. I used to listen to those songs and they're full of references about inappropriate relationships that affected my thinking and affected my marriage. And I don't know if you listen to it regularly or if that was a first time for you or whatever, but <laughs> if this is music you listen to regularly, then can I just caution you that this is dangerous stuff? Lauren, the receptionist, sends the lead pastor that email. I bet that must have been scary. Not just, I'm just saying it, but I bet that must have been scary. That was a brave choice. Now, thank goodness in that story, I was able to go to her and say, well, it's a good story. I'm not using the song, thanks, because you told me what was in it, wow. But I said to her, listen, I mean, I literally, I had tears in my eyes when I read that email, because I thought, if this is how we roll here, we're gonna be just fine. We're gonna be just fine. If the receptionist is willing to send the lead pastor an email because he's listening to some music she's not so sure is good for him, we're gonna be just fine because we're guarding each other's intimacies now, not each other's accountabilities, not each other's behaviors. She, she, it wasn't about the behavior, she was noticing a lion somewhere and just saying, hey, just on the off chance you don't know this, I'm just trying to tell you, this is dangerous stuff. And so there we begin the story. Let us place our hindels firmly at our city gates, our intimacy with our creator, our intimacy with our spouse, our intimacy with our biblical community. Let's take those things seriously enough that we don't let the distractions and busyness of this life diminish those intimacies. If you don't feel in love with those things, start nurturing them and be open enough to invite your biblical community in. Because if we guard our hearts, folks, we guard the gospel. And if we guard the gospel, we guard the kingdom and the glory of God. And if we're guarding the kingdom and the glory of God, then we are living what we were created to be people that bring glory to God. If for some reason, the ship has passed your gates, several of them got by. In the movie Thor, right after Heindel brings that one down, 12 more come and they get past him. Wreaks havoc on the city. You know what's great about this movie? Once the city's totally destroyed, you know what makes this movie awesome? It's not Heindel stopping the first ship. It's that the men and women in that city rise to their feet in the ashes and start fighting back until they kill the enemy get the enemy out of their city, and then rebuild the city from scratch. If the gates are already overthrown for you, you're addicted to something, you wish you weren't, you're not, not sure how it happened, you're looking at stuff online you shouldn't regularly, you're taking those pills regularly, you know you shouldn't. 
You're, you're, you're stuck in something. Look, statistically, a bunch of you here are, are in the darkness already. Statistically, a bunch of you are already past the point of guarding the gates. Your marriage is falling apart, but nobody knows yet. Only you and your spouse. Listen, don't, don't sit in the ashes of your city and think it's over. It's not over. That's what Easter's all about. It's just beginning. And instead of starting with being watchful, because that's a little late now, the things are past, or even nurturing, because you're beyond that, you gotta start with number three, be open. Invite the community in. Bring light to your situation. Tell someone, just dare to be brave enough. Yes, it'll get dark for a while, or scary at least, but don't worry. Here at Mosaic Church, we want to rebuild cities, we do. We don't just wanna guard gates, we wanna do that well, but we wanna rebuild cities too. If your city is destroyed, come to us and say, my city's destroyed. I wasn't watchful, I wasn't nurturing. I let a bunch in and now I'm stuck, I'm trapped, I'm broken. Would you help me? And we will step in, we would love to. Let's rebuild our cities, forgetting what is behind, the Bible says, and pressing on toward what is ahead. Let us go there. Don't feel that if you've missed guarding the gates well, that we think you're crazy and that you're a lost cause, we don't. We get that many things get past the gates. We just wanna work backwards and bring life and redemption to the broken. If they haven't got past your gates, guard well, guard well the intimacies of your heart. Because above all else, Solomon says, if we guard our hearts, out of that, the life will spring. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. Thank you that you've already shown us in scripture that it is not our behaviors that we must constantly be vigilant over, but our desires, those things that cause the behaviors to happen. God, allow us to constantly have good accountabilities in place so that we don't act stupid in our stupid moments, but help us to be equally vigilant in guarding our intimacies, watchful, nurturing, and open, inviting the biblical community in so that we travel as a herd and we watch for one another. And use us, God, as great ambassadors for your kingdom as we guard our hearts and our intimacies and in so doing, guard the gospel, expand your kingdom in the glory of your name and live the missional lives you've called us to. For all those here, including myself, where some of these intimacies are a little off, a little diminished, would you give us the courage to go nurture some, to go jump back in, and not to allow the foolishness of the enemy to drive us. May we lay our anxieties and our entitlements and our hurts and our frustrations at your cross, at your feet, humbling ourselves, and may we come to the table for your glory, saying, God, fill me and teach me how to be more in love with you today, more in love with my spouse, more in love with my biblical community, and help us to grow strong as a church in the safety of your protection over us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.